0: Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. One of the Philippines most prominent journalists is facing up to six years in prison after she was found guilty of cyber libel charges on the 15th of June this year. A verdict condemned as setting an extraordinarily damaging precedent for press freedoms in the Philippines. Her name is Maria Reza, and the offending article was about corruption of a Philippine Supreme Court judge. Since the election of President Duterte in the Philippines in 2016, there have been significant deteriorations in civil liberties and workers' rights. This verdict comes at a time of civil crackdown, concealed by the COVID-19 pandemic, and in the context of the murderous war on drugs. On Accent of Women today, I speak with Maria Reza herself, the journalist facing six years of prison following that guilty verdict. She starts off by telling us about Rappler, the publication for which she's the CEO and executive editor, and in which that offending article was published.
1: We founded Rappler in 2012. You know, I am uh, two of us, uh, the four founders came from broadcast television, and then two came from the largest, the investigative news magazine that had been more than a decade old at that point. So it was a fusion of print and broadcast. But beyond that, we wanted to include technology. Uh, what, what I, the exploration we were doing with Rappler is really looking at how technology is changing journalism and how we can Enable our community to then be part of the entire process, right? And and if you asked me at the very beginning, you know what was rapper about? Uh, the one sentence elevator pitch for every startup founder. Uh, It was, I always used to say Rappler is about building communities of action.
0: You have now been found guilty of cyber libel. Um, These are charges uh, that were brought in the Philippines. And as I said, you've been found guilty of them. And that's in relation to an article that uh, was written and published on that Rappler website. What was, can you tell us what was so controversial about the article? What was the article about? What are these charges in relation to?
1: Well, first it was an article that was written in 2012, uh, months before the law we allegedly violated had even been enacted. And it was a public interest article about uh, issues of corruption with a former chief justice of the Supreme Court, who at that point was in the middle of an impeachment trial. He was impeached after that, of course. And the whole thing was about how even while he was at the impeachment trial, he was using expensive luxury vehicles that belonged to businessmen. And the story was really just, you know, the the picture of the car he was using with the license plate, and then who it belonged to, who is the man who filed the cyber Bible case. He was interviewed for that story, and then I think what's most interesting to me is that the case had already been thrown out by the government's own lawyers uh, because the period of prescription or the statute of limitations was done, right? So it was uh, in order to actually convict me in this case, they first had to get it to court. There were two of us convicted for the, you know, me and and a former colleague, Ray Santos. Uh, They had to, in order to get it to court, they did two big things that will impact every Filipino. The first is to say, to change the statute of limitations or the period of prescription for libel from one year to 12 years. Uh, That, uh, along with the second huge push, uh, the charge that we were that we faced was actually republication. Um, and the judge accepted this is Judge Montessa accepted that uh, fixing a typo, you know, we changed one letter in one word evasion. Uh, we changed the T to an S so it's spelled properly. This happened in 2014 when the law at that point was still under a temporary restraining order, so it still wasn't in effect. But she said that, uh, well, you did this that's republication so essentially these two huge leaps i call it legal acrobatics is now going to if this this decision stays will now affect every single filipino and i think that you know all of that these two huge leaps essentially do something that is unconstitutional which is to apply a law retroactively we violated a law that wasn't existing yet. I mean, it boggles my mind.
0: It actually is crazy, but it also is not uncommon in environments of increased repression. I'm going to ask you some more directed questions about the repression in the Philippines in a moment. Um, But I wanted to ask you because this law was being developed in around 2012 to 2014, and I wondered where do these laws come from? What was the social or circumstantial catalyst to the introduction of these types of laws?
1: So, in the, the cybercrime law was actually what's passed in 2012, and then uh, we, along with others, many Filipinos. Uh, Challenged it at the Supreme Court, and that was why it had a temporary restraining order. The whole reason for it at that point in time was really you know how do you adapt to technology just like us Rappler was a fool we're the only we were at, uh, I think we started the only large digital only news organization right uh, and I think that the government in trying to adapt to technology uh, when it's fashioned with both uh, uh, a kind of incomplete background and context for the technology, and then the the kind of overarching idea to retain power. I think control is a big factor. Also, it it made it. Di- we thought it was difficult to begin with before we even realized that this could be turned against us. Right, and then I, I you know, it's it's shocking, of course. <laughs> you know, we talked about. The dangers of this cyber crime. At that point, it was called the Cyber Crime Prevention Act. Uh, and then, when it became a law, when we challenged it at the Supreme Court, we thought that it was wide open for abuse. And that's exactly what's happened here. A loophole of interpretation is, is blown wide open. So you could drive a truck through it, and in the end, the people who are getting run over well, it, it's be- You right now right but Filipinos are going to be the one who
0: get run over well i am not a believer that laws are inherently just or exist in some kind of vacuum (laughs) they are a a product of the political environment in which they're enacted so looking at the philippines i think that uh, the verdict in your case the issue of repression of press freedom the that I think these things are consistent with Dutetra's overall repression of society. We've heard a lot about the war on drugs, the skyrocketing number of murders associated with this program. Can you give us a, um, a broader picture of the situation in the Philippines, the war on drugs, poverty and the overall repression of civil society? It it is shocking.
1: You know, the, the Philippines that I knew is gone, uh, and it starts with. It really started with the brute, this brutal drug war that happened hours after President Duterte took his oath of office in 2016. And you know, in those months from June to to June 2016 to December to the end of that year, uh, we saw the police change the numbers killed. In plain sight, right? And you know they just atomized it to the point because they were reporting everything. And part of the reason, ostensibly, is because they want to show how well they followed President Duterte's mandate. And uh, so they reported all the deaths. And then when it became too big, they realized, oh my God, we're going to have to distinguish and make this death toll smaller. Uh, but you know the death toll is chilling. Um, human rights groups now, our own Commission on Human Rights in the Philippines, put it at at least twenty seven thousand people killed. Uh, that's as of December last year, and the police themselves will admit to six thousand to eight thousand. Compare that with like twenty one years of martial of Ferdinand Marcos's rule, where it was maybe three thousand two hundred people killed. I mean, again, this number, which no one knows exactly how many have died. Imagine, no one knows. This number is the first casualty in, in our battle for truth. But that was only the beginning. Then reporting, when you're reporting this, obviously the next step was how do you make people accept this? Uh, President Duterte has said that he, he governs, he rules using violence and fear. He said this to me in an interview in December of 2016. It's part of his both his personal philosophy and that was how he ruled Davao city where he was mayor on and off since 1988 um, so we began to see in 2016 we got we were targeted because we published a series called the propaganda war and and this three-part series the first was how the internet was being weaponized uh, the second was how Facebook algorithms impact democracy. And the third was looking at manufactured consensus, how 26 fake accounts can influence up to 3 million others. So this that had the arrows then trained on us. Uh, right after we published that, I got an average of 90 nine zero hate messages per hour, right? New weapon. Um, and it's it's evolved over the last four years, but what's consistent is not just disinformation, which is half-truths, misleading facts, but these denigrating attacks that are meant to incite hate. And in my case, I can tell you they used my gender, they used my my facial features, they, used, uh, they even used a skin condition. I have extremely dry skin. And it's horrendous. And it's meant to incite hate so that you are dehumanized. And when you are at that point, uh, your credibility is shot. So that's, that to me was the first, right? If, you don't, if people don't have the facts, they cannot demand better. That's one of the things we've learned. And on social media platforms, which are essentially behavioral modification systems, Lies laced with anger and hate spread faster than facts. In fact, if you pound something a million times, if you say a lie a million times, it becomes a fact. And built into these platforms is the polarization of our society. So I watched our society splinter apart. And, you know, uh, an easy one is they pound uh, the attacks against me and Rappler, right? There are two things that that does. The first is to make us doubt ourselves, to, to take a narrative out, to make us roll back investigative journalism. We didn't because we realized that's what it was meant to do, but that's one. And then the second one is to create a fake bandwagon effect, right? And that tears down the credibility and trust. So this is, these are like insidious attacks on our Already weak institutions, and within about six months, you watched our institutions collapse. President Duterte is the most powerful leader this nation has ever had, precisely because he has conditions of martial law without even declaring martial law.
0: He did declare martial law, though, in Mindanao, did he not?
1: He did for for years, right? But like right now in in Manila, Mm. part of it is in 2020. It was it was, and look, uh, this is his fourth. He's now going to be facing, he's giving his State of the Nation address in July of what his fourth year in office is like. He has two more years left. He can't run again. But will we have elections? It's unclear. In 2020, we had three big things happen, a pandemic. So this is not something that the government can demonize, which is the the way it deals with problems. Uh, And yet, President Duterte tried. Early on, he kind of, he said, look, I'm just going to slap that virus away. He, they downplayed the virus. We had the first death outside of China, right? And that was early. And yet the flights from Wuhan weren't stopped. Uh, this was a government that uh, then did the lockdown in March. March 12th was when the president announced it. We are now in our 15th week of lockdown, and yet our incidents of COVID-19 are increasing, and that's because our pandemic reaction is led by former military generals who are leading the charge against the virus. Like literally in Cebu City, where there's an, uh, an uptick again, you have video of generals in planes men in combat fatigues, dropping leaflets and masks. Uh, this isn't the way you deal with a public health emergency. And I think Filipinos are afraid, we're afraid for for our lives. Um, but the, And then the second thing that happened is because it was a total lockdown, right? we've had a lockdown where the President Duterte in a late night address actually told Filipinos, stay at home if you violate quarantine, He told the police to, and these are his words: "Shoot them dead." And you know they did. We have this on camera. People who, in fact, the very next day after the president said that, a 63-year-old farmer was stopped at a checkpoint. He wasn't wearing a mask. Uh, The police report said he was drunk. He attacked with a bolo knife. At that point, people wanted food, mind you, right? They they weren't allowed out of their homes, Um, and the police shot him and killed him.
0: And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Women. I'm speaking with Maria Reza, the CEO and executive editor of Rappler, who is facing six years of prison after she was found guilty of cyber libel.
1: We have more instances of this. So there's that military, the security-driven lockdown. The second is the shutdown of ABS-CBN. This would have been unthinkable. Uh, ABS-CBN employs 11,000 people. This is the largest broadcaster. And just like that, on May 5, like with Rappler, a minor regulatory agency came to the network and they were given a cease and desist order. The network, within a few hours, shut down. Shut down, it is dark. The last time this happened was when Marcos... Ferdinand Marcos declared martial law in 1972 and shut down ABS-CBN. It was dark for 14 years. And now we're watching, as we're speaking, there's a hearing going on in in the House of Representatives because ABS-CBN was in the middle of trying to get its franchise renewed. So this is a way for political power uh, to to control the largest that work. That's the second. And then I think the third one I would say is just um, the passage of this draconian anti-terror bill. It's passed. It passed the Senate in February, and then within about five days uh, in this month, sorry, it's July. So five days in June, it passed the House of Representatives. It is now at the desk of the president, waiting for his signature. If he chooses not to sign because there's great outcry against this bill, uh, it will still lapse into law. And what's scary about this bill is that anyone who is critical, someone like me, anyone who demands answers, can now be declared a terrorist by a small group of cabinet secretaries. And once they do that, you can be arrested without a warrant and you can be jailed for up to 24 days. That's, you know, on the face of it, constitutional experts say this is unconstitutional, Um, but it's already there. So I feel like we're just on the precipice, you know, is our democracy gonna survive this? That's really a question. It
0: is the question. But here is what's perplexing. It seems that Duterte is very popular. He's a very popular president. How do you explain this against the wildly anti-democratic moves that he's made in the country that no doubt is being experienced across the population of the Philippines?
1: I think there's three responses I'll give you. One is... uh... Don't um, downplay the impact of the propaganda machine that the government is running on Facebook. Again, these are influence operations, right? So uh, how popular is president Duterte? Uh, well, if you hear it a million times that I love him or he's better than the Pope, I mean, these are fact checked statements that aren't true, but people believe them, right? So there's, I think there's he's buoyed by the influence operations on social media. I think the second one is the statistical surveys that are that are done and they they're normally really good companies because they've been around for a very long time but I always ask this question of you know how do you account for the environment of fear we live in an environment now where violence and fear is part of our lives and you know I, I say that there's a governance of three C's corrupt coerce or co-opt and if you don't fall under these three C's, you get targeted and there are cautionary tales of like me for the journalist uh, and rappler, ABS, C B N, and then for politicians, it's Senator Lila De Lima, who's been in prison since February 2017. It's more than three years that she's been in prison, right? Because the president can do that. He has consolidated power. That's that's the second point. So how do you account for fear in this that I mentioned the brutal drug war, so there you go, right? And then finally, the third one is really um, there's I call it the death by a thousand cuts, but the consolidation of power and and the whittling down of the rights that are guaranteed in the Philippine Constitution is happening in plain sight. But when it happens incrementally, and you don't want to stick your neck out, you want you look away. But I'm hoping that we're getting to the point where it becomes impossible to look away, because we'll step over, we'll fall down, and we won't have the same, we won't be a democracy anymore. I will say that I do think he was elected uh, in a democratic election, because that was before the before social media was weaponized. And, but think about it like this, right? President Duterte was one of five presidential candidates. He didn't get a majority. He just had a plurality among the five. I think he was elected with 38, 39% of the votes. That's all. So he wasn't elected with an overwhelming mandate. And then once he got elected, he came in with violence and fear. He, he told me this in December 2016, you know, in an interview that we did. Then he was very proud of it, and I actually asked him i said well, mr president you 're going to be in charge of uh, of actually enforcing the Constitution, protecting the constitution and He said, "Well, this is the best way to do it, so this is where we are
0: <laughs> Well, I guess it would be necessary for all parts of civil society to come together in order to overcome the repression that we 've been speaking about." Do you think this is possible? Do you think that this could happen?
1: What we've seen, so first, let me take it from like, where are the opposition politicians? Um, They've been shell-shocked by social media. And I will, that's something that we've seen, right? They are attacked individually like we are. Uh, That takes a toll on their own popularity ratings. They don't know how to come together or they didn't this was before the lockdown uh, and you can see this in our midterm elections in 2019 for the very first time since our commonwealth days like since the 1930s uh, no opposition politician made it into the senate that's that and that i would i would push that directly to two factors the social media propaganda and the second one is the large, vast amounts of money that was thrown into the, into the system. Um, so I guess the biggest question we have now is as President Peter consolidates power, will we even have elections in two years' time? It's very hard to tell. I don't know where we will go. And we just have to continue doing what we do because this really matters right now. And standing up, publicly standing up, when there are costs to standing up, that's what we need to do right now—to just sound the alarm that our democracy is dying. So there are two things that I've I've thought about a lot, right? Like, I, why are you interested in the Philippines? Why should you be interested in the Philippines? And what's happening to us? it's because it's also happening to you. And this is where the, we're no longer nation-states operating independently of each other. We never really were before, but now even more so with with the social media platforms that unite all of us. A lie told in Melbourne hits me the same time that it hits you. A lie told in the Philippines travels the same way. Right? I think... There's the huge problem beyond the virus that is global is how do we hold technology to account? Because that really, you know, in 2016, I always said I was fighting impunity in the brutal drug war and then the impunity of Silicon Valley because they enabled this, the exponential propaganda, the exponential lies, the attacks against us, they stripped journalists of the protection that was granted by our constitution. I think that's one. We need to find a solution. We need to stop this poisoning of our information ecosystem. Lies cannot spread faster than facts because if you don't have facts, you can't have truth. You can't have trust. If you don't have any of those, then you don't have a democracy. Uh, The second thing is and people have asked me this in different ways. You know, they they ask me if, they, if I think I'm going to win. <laughs> and, and that always makes me laugh because I don't, it's, who wants to fight the government, right? I mean, I never set out to do that. I am just, the line we've used since 2016 is we hold the line. The government is trying to push us to make us voluntarily give up our rights. Uh, we don't want to do that. And so I guess I don't think we should be thinking about whether we win or lose. I think we should be standing up for our values. We should be standing up for the mission of journalism. For in a battle for truth, everyone should be a truth teller. And I guess that's it. Like for me, the fact that every time my rights are violated, someone is going to sign their signature. That, unfortunately is the journey I'm on. When you're targeted, okay, fine, I'm here. Sign your name and whether I get justice now or later, I know I'm on the right side.
0: That was Maria Reza, the CEO and executive editor of Rappler, who was facing six years of prison after she was found guilty of cyber libel. And that brings us to the end of today's program of Accent of Women. This week's program was produced in my study at home with the incredible support of 3CR staff. I want to extend a very big thank you to them for ensuring that this program is still able to be heard right across the country. Accent of Women receives financial assistance from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website, that's 3CR.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hannah and I look forward to your company again next week.